Wonder Woman. Welcome back. We are so excited. Oh my god, I'm so excited. We have a VIP guest. An extra, extra special guest. <laughs> Go on, Rach, introduce him. His name is Mr. Khan. The one, the only. <laughs> Welcome. Welcome. Well, thanks for having us. This You're is uh, really weird. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Literally, thank you so much for taking time out of your day. We really appreciate it, don't we? We really, really appreciate it. We're so excited. Yeah. Can you give us like a little background? Like, who are you? Like, what do you do? That kind of thing. Yeah. So my name, that's fine. My name is Rehan and I'm a, I'm a, I'm a doctor and a dad. <laughs> uh, so I, um, I'm married with three teenage children. I live in East London. Uh, and I, uh, I, we know each other because uh, we, we're not. Although we're not working directly together right now, we worked together for quite a long time because yeah. uh, we worked together in maternity care. So I'm a consultant in obstetrics and gynaecology at the London Hospital Whitechapel, as it was known before yeah. <laughs> it became the Royal London. And um, I, I, uh, I specialise in looking after women who've got complex medical problems in pregnancy. Wow, that's a great introduction. Imagine that being your title. I know. <laughs> We're like, we midwives. <laughs> and Mr Khan, you do quite a lot of lecturing as well, don't you? Yeah, um, quite a bit. <clears throat> so I, I think um, I really love the education side of what I do. So some of it is, uh, some of it's undergraduate. So we've, we've got a medical school, which is Queen Mary University of London. And so... Uh, for year twos and for year fours, I do some lecturing. We and I think all of us have looked after them when they've be, looked quite lost on the labour ward. Yeah. yeah. And then and then we've shown you know we've shown them a normal birth. Yeah. And their expression has switched from lost to horrified to delighted. <laughs> we've all been there. The, all yeah. Been there. So we've all been there. <laughs> and and then there's a lot that we do for postgraduates. Mm. So so we've got so many amazing uh, young trainee doctors oh, okay. uh, at the Royal London. So. SHOs and registrars, so we do a lot of training, and also over time we we, we switched it, didn't we? We became much more multidisciplinary. Yeah. So we do things like prompt together, and CTG meetings have become much more dis- multidisciplinary. I think it's much yeah. better now. I think so, yeah. And even in person, kind of training, we was talking about it on the way here actually that. One of our biggest memories of um, you is when we were both students and we were so scared and we there was an emergency and we came in and everyone was running around doing everything. Panicking. Yeah, like every, and then you was just like, everyone stop. And everyone stood still and you allocated jobs and the, the emergency went so smoothly. So smoothly, so calmly. Yeah, and I think that's why now... That really we, stuck with us. Yeah. So we take, we keep, we like practice that don't we every day in now. the emergency we're like stop yeah. <laughs> who's gonna scribe <laughs> who's got the times who's doing this yeah, yeah so maybe, maybe the advantage of leading an emergency is then you don't have to show anyone if your technical skills are terrible you never thought of it that way that's true you know i didn't know that you actually live from in east london never knew that so I live in Snaresbrook. It's like between Walthamstow and Wanstead. So it's oh, quite nice. Because wow, yeah. it's just at the bottom end of Epping Forest. Oh. So, so it's East London, but we've got forest behind the house. Oh, that's perfect. Really good. Do you have a dog? No. Oh, I could say, it'd be a nice place to walk a dog. I don't know, I don't have one. No, mate, I always think you should just get a dog to walk it. Do yeah, you know what I mean? yeah. Like, nice to walk get fresh air. <laughs> I'm not getting a dog. <laughs> don't your kids want one? It's not down to them. That's <laughs> true. That's true. That's true. <laughs> Could have an office dog. Have you seen that dog in A and E? They've got now. Like it goes round and um, like everyone strokes it just for a bit of morale throughout the day. Yeah. Well, I think I that sort of thing is though. It's good. I, I think it's a good idea. Same. We should have it in maternity. We should. 
Yeah, Are we're, you on board we're not with having that idea? a dog in maternity. <laughs> Mr. Khan said no. <laughs> made you want to train to become a doctor and especially to become an obstetrician? I was interested in being a doctor at school and I think you have to get an interest early mm. and we had uh, you know f family members family friends in in medical profession and in nursing profession and it was interesting to talk to them but the thing is when you go for medical school interview there's a sort of set idea that the, when someone says why does he want to be a doctor you say, well, it's this balance where you, you think about uh, science, but you also think about caring for people. Okay. <clears throat> so everyone says things like that. But actually, the, the, the true thing, or my true reason, was to do with stories. So I'm very interested in when people tell stories. So if people tell stories about what they've been doing and how they've been interacting with people. You, learn, you start learning stuff. So, of course, some of that is complex and very medical. But some of it's just trying to understand more about people's lives. Mm -hmm. So I was very interested in that. Mm -hmm. So I grew up in Northumberland. So it's quite far from here. And when I come to medical school, I, I went to medical school in West London at St Mary's Hospital. Okay. So um, <clears throat> it's quite a big step for me because I was 18. So it was before the mobile phone era. <laughs> so my, my, uh, my, my mum has kept all, all my letters. So this was at a time when you wrote a letter a week. Wow. So I'd forgotten this, but she, um, she's, so there's nothing in them. I had nothing, either I had nothing interesting to say, or the truth would have been so unpleasant that I couldn't share it with my parents. <laughs> but, um, but nonetheless, I wrote a, a letter every week, because I remember they did have these coin phones, you know, um, where you put a coin in. Oh, you hardly yeah. see them now. No, and there was, one, there was one between 15, and they never worked anyway, so you used to write letters. Um, so West London is, um, it's not the same as East London. I never knew East London as a professionally until I come as a consultant. But I did know East London, sort of. And so the reason why is because I'm, I'm Asian. So I'm of Indian origin. And uh, when we were growing up, so in, the, in the summer, we might go, you could call it a holiday. So it's kind of a cheap holiday, because actually what you do is go and stay with family friends. Yeah. So we had family friends in East Ham. So they originally lived in Burgess Road, and then they went to um, uh, like Manor Park, in the bit where you have all the avenues numbered, one, oh, two, yeah, three, four, yeah. five, six, seven. So they, they still live in Fourth Avenue. Aww. So we used to come and stay there. And then, only now do I think, I, I was even maybe learning off them then about what life is like in East London. So we would like, we think, good, we're going on holiday. This is London. We're like on television. We're going to go to Oxford Street and have a look. And we did. Oh, yeah. We used to get the bus, all right? So I don't know why I've got the bus. It took an hour and a bit even then to get from East Ham to Oxford Street. We'd go and look around and we'd come back. We'd realise that our family friends who we were staying with had never been. Uh -huh. So they had been living their lives in East London, but they'd really been living their lives in East London. They'd, they'd never left. And their lives weren't the same, you know. And there is something about East London that it's 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 warm and it brings you in. But you actually start to learn that people's lives are varied, but they're often difficult. So it's only later that you think about health inequality and stuff like that. I think about that when you're like 12. But you start, <laughs> uh, maybe, maybe even when you're little, you start yeah. to learn little, little things, you know? Yeah. So medical school's long. 
it's uh, I did six years actually because I did a BSc in the middle of it in clinical sciences so I enjoyed it uh, although St Mary's is full of rugby players uh-huh. you know so if you look at me you know if someone threw a rugby ball at me it probably wind me <laughs> but um, so I graduated and then you, you, now it's called foundation training so I did my house jobs but before I graduated, I went on medical elective. So there's a there's a there's a time period they give you quite long, where you get to go abroad and experience healthcare in a different setting. So I went to the Indian subcontinent. Wow. So I actually visited India, Nepal, Pakistan in that one long long trip, and it was such an amazing. Have you been? We talked about that in one of our episodes because we went um, to Hyderabad with oh. Dr. Ram and his team. Yeah, the Elia Peel. Yeah. Yeah, and it was like eye-opening. I'd forgotten that, because actually I knew that. Yeah. Because of the pictures. Yeah, it was eye-opening, <laughs> wasn't it? We yeah, it was incredible. What, what was your take on that when you went to...? So really, maybe that's the link with women's health, because mm. I did get quite a bit of experience working in a maternity setting, so a labour setting. Mm. And there are things which even now I think, my God, why have I gone into this field given what I saw? Yeah. Okay, so a couple of examples. Um, your audience is a, largely a general audience or healthcare professional audience. Mixture, really. Mixture. Mixture. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so most of, some of your audience will know what eclampsia is, yeah. and some of them won't. Eclampsia is a really worrying condition where you get a bad seizure when you're pregnant. It's linked with having high blood pressure. So in the labour ward, they had this room, and it said on the on the door, eclampsia room. Mm. Okay. So, if you open the door, can you guess what you saw? Oh, no. Women fitted. Well, no, you didn't see anything. Oh. So, it was oh. a room with a light bulb off. Oh, they thought it was epilepsy. So, it's not so much that. I mean, if you've got a reduced seizure threshold, actually a bright light could tr- trigger a seizure. Yeah. So, it wasn't a lack of medical knowledge per se, but it was a lack of resource. Okay? Oh. So, you have to understand the context so here we're used to someone picking up the telephone and the ambulance service bringing them to the Barkentine or bringing the, bringing them to Whitechapel or, or or bringing a midwife out to them maybe yeah okay so that's what we're used to people would come in after days in labor to a healthcare setting because usually they were in the countryside and didn't have so much setting yeah. of healthcare or professionals and they might have a a woman in the village who, whose responsibility it is to look after women in labor and she often had some good skills actually yeah i don't think you should decry someone just because they're not obviously medically trained they've often got pretty good skills yeah so women would come in at death's door literally so really they'd go in this room to die and some of them would and some of them wouldn't so the thing with maternity it's always been a bit like that i've read that in the 19th century when they first started doing caesarean section they didn't actually assume that a woman could live through the operation. So what they would do is they would open the tummy, same. They would deliver the baby, same. And that was the end of the operation. So she would walk off, all right? Now, some of those women lived. The resilience of women to live is the most unbelievable thing. Okay, so they were left with an open abdomen, and they made it. That's insane. Okay, it is insane. Women, if you give women a chance, they will live. So in this eclampsia room, where essentially they t- take the light bulb out so that they're less likely to fit, a lot of them made it. Wow. Oh, my God. So the other thing, so the second of two things I'll tell you what I saw, explains why I don't want a dog on the labour ward. Okay? <laughs> okay. Right? <laughs> okay. So there is a reason. 
because it's reminded us of something. Okay. Okay. So in this hospital, uh, there were no, there were no rats. So the reason there were no rats is they had a lot of cats. Mm, okay. okay. But actually, there was easier pickings for a cat than going chasing after mice. Can you guess? Right, you're not going to like this. Oh, no. So a woman has a baby, okay, and once the baby comes out, what comes out next? The placenta. Mm. So they put the placenta to the side. Before they know it, a cat's running and taking it. Oh, my God. What? I mean... I can understand it. It's, it's like a steak. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? No, like it's nutritious. It's, like an, it's the same as... Like, for a cat, it's the same as us eating a cow. I don't eat meat. Yeah, but do you know what I mean though? It's just a bit of meat to them, isn't it? So I don't understand what you're saying. <laughs> they don't, I don't think they have a value system about what they eat, but I don't can't promise that because I've not actually asked the cat if they do or don't. <laughs> so, so they'd leave the placenta on the side, the cat will As you do, the and then you're cat. attending to the woman, and then yeah. you look round and you realise a cat is dragging this placenta away. Wow. Is it, how long ago did this happen? This is in the uh, mid-1990s. And where, where wow. is this? In India? So that was in India, yeah. Wow. Okay, so um, so sometimes you, you learn things and you can't unlearn them. But what did I learn? So maybe, I, you know, when you're young, I'm, I'm not sure I knew what I was learning. Yeah. But I was learning. So I was starting to learn something about me and where I was from. Mm. Okay? Because um, there is a weirdness about that. So my children are born and brought up in London. Yeah. Okay? Completely. Me and my wife are of Indian Muslim origin. Okay? My children think they're Indian. That's just weird. Yeah, yeah. Because actually, I don't think they are. No. I fear they're British, actually. Yeah. But, um, but they think, it's, it's interesting what people think. Yeah. And understanding where I had come from, what my background was, that, I, I think that's, that, well, I, don't, I can't speak for other people. It's very important to me. Yeah. yeah, it is. And I started thinking about women's health and childbirth. I think then, so I did not make a decision then mm. to become an obstetrician. And I, if I'm being really honest with you, I'm not sure if I have made a decision to become an obstetrician. <laughs> Sometimes you just end up where you end up. Yeah. But it may, be, it may be quite hard for me to switch now. But you're so good at it. Yeah. You're so, so good at it. And you know, you telling that story actually make it it like clicks things now. I remember um, having a situation with you when you know you was explaining to us all that right, we need to go into this woman. It's duty of duty of candor, and we'd go to this woman. We'd talk about the whole situation, what we would change, what we have done differently. And you always said like you know, even if you make a decision that at that moment it was the right decision, and on reflection, actually you could have done something possibly different you should always let them know. And I think now, hearing your story, it just it makes me realise that you're actually just a kind person from your experiences. Well, I mean, that's very nice of you. But, <laughs> yeah, and, I uh, agree, Rachel. You know, like, tar. But, yeah. um, <laughs> tar. But, uh, <laughs> but I, think, <laughs> I think, well, perhaps all you, all you can do is do your best. Yeah. yeah. You know, but actually... Um, some of your audience will have, will have read Donna Ockenden's initial report into maternity services in Shrewsbury and Telford. Now, it's not a very, very long report. It's quite long, but it's readable. And actually, you read it and you start thinking... I started thinking. I don't know what other people start thinking. It's got a lot of detail in it about yeah. things, what, what went wrong. 
but actually really start thinking about things like honesty and compassion uh, and is it unfashionable to say kindness? No. I think just being kind. Kindness should never go out of fashion. Never. Especially if you're a healthcare professional. I think it should be one of your main priorities is to be kind. Always. That's in general, like always be kind, isn't it? Yeah. Like, you know, when we were student midwives, obviously we met with a lot of different kinds of people from walks of life who wanted to be, be midwives. And we noticed some had a natural sort of kindness about them and some some of them had to work on it a little bit more in the way they presented themselves and spoke to the women it was quite interesting wasn't it yeah but I think over the years things have changed like positively in like healthcare and stuff like that like as you said now we work more collectively together we're kinder to each other and therefore when we come into work we're in a better mood, for example, so then we're kinder to the women. So it's like a little circle, isn't it? Yeah. Circle of kindness. <laughs> and actually, Mr Khan, what you were saying about being an Asian man in East London, do you remember a few years ago when you spoke to Rachel and I and we had a conversation and it, you were saying, isn't it interesting how at the London hospital there's not that many Asian midwives? in the Asian community. And then you spoke about how do we change this? Do we start from the from schools? Can we go, do you remember? Yeah. Should we go and do assemblies and teaching? Yeah. And we were gonna start this and then obviously life got hectic and stuff. But I, I think that was a really good idea. Maybe we should come back to it. We yeah. should. Because like, um, maybe a lot of what we do is based on trust, mm-hmm. yeah? yeah? So maybe, um, Maybe we're watching now what happens if you don't have trust. So, uh, this week the vaccine programme has opened out to further groups. Those groups are now going to include large volumes of pregnant women. So what do we know so far about about vaccination? So we know that people of colour were disproportionately affected by COVID-19. But we also now know, actually, that vaccine hesitancy is more in people from ethnic minorities, black yeah. people, Asian people, you know. Yeah. Well, that's kind of really dead worrying, isn't it? Because the people most likely to get poorly from the infection, the people most likely to decline the preventative treatment. And when you add in, <laughs> maybe there's a complicating factor with pregnancy. When you're expecting, yeah. uh, my experience is lots of expecting women they're reluctant to even take one paracetamol, let alone, <laughs> let alone have a, a, a vaccine. And also because it's quite a new vaccine, so you can understand why they're a little bit more worried about it. But then you have trust. So it is new and it's not experimental. The experiments have been done. So I, I, th- I don't believe it's true to say it's experimental. And there is clear guidance that it can be given in pregnancy. It's very, very clear. And, you know, as a, I guess my public health message as an obstetrician is, no, it doesn't affect fertility. Yeah, that's my biggest worry, you know. Is it? Even as a healthcare professional, I'll be completely honest, I'll say, you know, I've been offered the vaccine many a times, as I'm sure you guys have. And that, for me, I think as a woman, you always worry the most about fertility. And that, for some reason, that was the rumour that was going round. And that is the only reason that I'm scared to get it. 
I had to delve to understand where the rumour come from. Yeah. So the first thing is, interestingly, most of the people who have approached me to ask about this are midwives. Yeah. <laughs> really? Yeah. So I now think all midwives are trying for a baby. Because <laughs> there's loads, of, loads of them. Um, but um, there was a former employer of Pfizer who was not involved in the development of this vaccine who, uh, who essentially wrote a position statement asking questions about this topic but there was never any evidence for it and there's no scientific basis for fertility to be compromised so there is just no link it's kind of you've heard it from the OG (laughs) Mr Clark (laughs) so now we've got a situation where people feel vulnerable Mm. okay and pregnant women feel very vulnerable so you start to think, well, why, why, why would it be that some people feel more hesitant about the treatment than others when it sounds like they might need it potentially more as a community and maybe as individuals? There's a lot of history of racism in healthcare. Oh God, it goes yes. back a long time. If you reread stuff about the Tuskegee experiment, if you understand about Henrietta Lacks and the development of the Halar cell line as, as a novel cancer treatment, you, you start to understand that actually um, there are communities who have had a very checkered history with healthcare and trust and have been betrayed yeah, and have. let down. Mm. And this is not a new thing. So <clears throat> Gandhi objected to smallpox vaccine. He thought it was a Western plot. So the, the arguments are not necessarily new. How you might one day get round arguments like that is if you've got trust between healthcare professionals as a group and women or patients as a group. So we three can't answer a huge question like that. But I think what we three are perceiving is one potential route to trust between the two groups is if the people looking after you feel or look representative of the people being looked after. And I think that was our concern, yeah. because on <clears throat> in the setting we were working, it didn't always feel like that, mm. because we, we had maybe one or two colleagues who seemed representative of about 60 or 70% of the women we were looking after. Mm. So I want to emphasise, that's not our fault. No, we turned up to work with the best of intentions. Yeah. But I think we were aspiring to something different. And also, the, the kids in Tower Hamlets and Newham and... Waltham Forest, they're super bright. Yeah. Me? I was born here. She, was, she went to school here as well. They're mainly yeah. super bright. Yeah. yeah. You are quite smart, to be honest. I am. I, I do know what you're saying, though. Like, when you think about, you know, when I think about growing up, for example, I had a police officer in my school, and, like, you know, I was a little bit naughty at school, I'm not going to lie, but I always made sure... I'm surprised at that? <laughs> I always made sure I got my, my grades. Which school you are? I went to George Green, mm. um, and... Like going back to what you said, like my school was very mixed boys, girls, different ethnic origins, like completely, completely a mixed school. And, um, you know, when I think about working anywhere else, sometimes I also think, like, I don't really want to work anywhere else. I, even I've moved from East London, I would never move my job out of East London because I feel like when you can connect with people on the same level, your passion for caring for them goes a little bit further than just the job. Does that make sense? So I think it does. Yeah. So do you think if a midwife had come to your school, if you were sort of year 10 or so, yeah. and just told you stories, 
Yeah, it would work. I think so. When you grow up, you know, for example, my dad, when I first told him I wanted to be a midwife, he wasn't really happy because I think for him, you know, to be successful, for example, you have to be a doctor or you have to be an accountant or all these big jobs lawyer, that are taught, yeah, lawyer, that's what's spoke about in school and in society, that actually other jobs like nursing, midwifery, being a porter, like being being the cleaner in hospital, like these jobs are essential for, uh, just as essential as being a doctor, of course doctors are, like have the most, what's the word? Um, I don't want to say responsibility because no, we all have responsibility, were, but, but they have the. I guess the, they're on the high, highest of the hierarchy when it comes to making decisions. For example, yeah. yeah. What do you think about hierarchies for actual patient safety, though? Oh, I don't think there's a place in it. It might even be, not only not a place. It might. Yeah. It might be the enemy of safety. So Rachel and I, as you remember, from when we were students here, we've gotten well with doctors, you know, the MCAs, everybody. And we used to join in on you on your guys' nights out and mm. <laughs> yeah. you know, social events and you know, we, we we've loved it. We never felt there was a hierarchy. We have friends in other hospitals where hierarchy is definitely present and visible and they they talk to us and they say, Wow, did you guys go out with the doctors and had had shots last night and yeah. did you go for dinner? And we'd be like yeah, like it's we're just all friends and yeah. But also as well is that it's, it's I think here I can't speak to anywhere else. I think here we're very good at you know that's a social event and when it comes to work stuff, you are obviously friendly. But priority is like making sure the work's yeah, done. Yeah, of course. And if there's a problem, of course we're going to escalate it to the doctors regardless of whether we had a drink or not. If we think something's <laughs> wrong, we'll go to a different doctor regardless of yeah. I think that's just it's but a balance. I, yeah, it's in, but it's important that you build that relationship with your team. So let us ask his question. So 14 years I've been here and I have never, I've always introduced myself by my first name to everyone. Yeah. So how come you two both call me Mr Khan? <laughs> Do you know what, even, even when we were on our own we'd always call you Mr Khan. Yeah. It's just, you know, I, I was going <laughs> to say... It's yeah. even Mr Hug or like... It, it, we just do it, isn't yeah. it? I think it's respect. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I, I think, think it's it respect. Is, yeah. You worked, worked very hard to become You're, Mr. Yeah, Khan. You are Mr. Khan. Yeah. Consultant. <laughs> I mean, I'll, <laughs> okay. I would just feel weird being like, you're right, Rayhan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't matter. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. That sounds better to me. Uh, we'll, 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 we'll try we'll it. Try. But it is, we'll try. it is, you know, it is longer. It is a hard route. Yeah. Um, in that, so... After six years at medical school, you enter postgraduate training. Mm. And that is long in Obst and Gynae because it's craft-based, because you do have to learn a lot of technical skills. And actually, some of them are obstetrics. A lot of them are in gynaecology. Mm. Um, so l- learning, I guess, a bit of laparoscopic surgery, you can't do that overnight. You've got, you've got to actually learn how to do it. Yeah. So I started... I started in, in uh, I did my house jobs in West London. And actually, I, I, um, I was very interested in being a psychiatrist. Really? Mm. Wow. What do you think of that? I think you'd be quite good at that too. We all need a psychiatrist, <laughs> don't we? we? Everyone needs one. You speak for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, a, I feel that's a, that's a really, that's a hard job. It's very hard. Emotionally, that's really hard. It, I think, I think, I think it is. Mm. I'm still not sure if I made the right choice. And I'm not sure if I made a choice. What happened actually is I panicked when waiting for the jobs to come out and just 
then started applying for other stuff. So I got a job uh, at Whittington as an SHO. And I really liked it. So I really, really liked the holistic aspects of women's health. I really did like the way it, it had a mix of things. So our junior doctors, if you, look at, if you look at their timetable over a week compared to other junior doctors in other specialties, if you're an endocrinolo endocrinology registrar or SHO, you basically do clinic and a bit of wards, and that's all you ever do. Um, <clears throat> our ones, they might go to theatre, they might be doing caesareans, they might be doing gynae on call, they might be doing labour ward, might be doing postnatal, might be doing antenatal clinic, gynae clinic. It's incredibly varied life. You never know what you're doing the next day. Um, and I, I found that attractive, actually. I thought I thought it was fun. Yeah. And yeah. I liked I liked talking to people, and I I, I I thought I thought I thought the relationships were a bit different than in much of medicine. So I think the midwifery doctor relationship is actually it's it is a bit different to the nursing doctor relationship, because midwif midwifery is midwives practitioners. Yeah. So it's more. It's changed now, actually. It's it's, but at that time, it, midwifery was more parallel with medicine in that way because both were practitioners. Um, but it was different. So when I was in SHO, midwives didn't sort perineums, oh. so only doctors did. So you spent most of your night on call preparing. That's what exactly how it was when I was in Australia. Mm. They had on call doctors. It was good. I was like, I'll do it. And I and they just taught, used to teach me all their little skills. I used to sit, and they'd be fine because they'd be like, oh, I can sleep now. Right, put Rachel on a night so I don't get called in. <laughs> so I'll do all the perineums. So you meet, you know, over time, you meet really, you meet great characters. You meet some really strange characters. Yeah. And then uh, I, uh, you know, I was very, very lucky. Basically, my story is one of luck rather than intention. So I was very, very lucky all the way through my career. So when I was in SHO, I met this great guy called Hazim El Rifai at University College Hospital. Then he dragged me along to do research into Mysoprostol uh, at Imperial. Yeah. And it was a really, it was a good break from full-time medicine, something different. I really, I really did like it. I didn't think I wanted to be a full-time academic. And then I was super lucky when I got my registrar posting because there were they, they were quite hard to get at the time. I'm still not quite sure why I got it, because there was a lot of people better than me. And then I got posted to Royal Free, and uh, and then to North Middlesex. I really loved North Middlesex. It's not East London. It is. You know, it really yeah. feels similar. Um, but I really, really liked it. And then I, I, I started getting interested in medical problems in pregnancy. And then I got even more lucky because when I was in the last, towards the last two years of my registrar training, uh, an opportunity came up with a guy called David Williams at, back at University College Hospital. And he trained me in obstetric medicine. So I'm indebted to him and, wow. and his colleague Pat O'Brien forever. Because yeah. <laughs> I had an interest, but they actually trained me up in it. Now what their training looked like was actually go and see a lot of patients and basically run the firm. And that was exactly <laughs> right for me. That yeah. was just what I needed because I, what I understood from that is they had faith in me. So they trusted me insofar as they trusted me to be able to tell when I didn't know what I was doing so that I could ask them. Yeah. And they would always, always have my back. Oh, that's I, I think, I, think mm. I, I learned something from that about um, what it means to have great trainers. Yeah, yeah. it's true.
when we were students, you know, we, we was working in a time where staffing here wasn't amazing. It was it's much more staff now. There was a shortage of probably midwives. So we did find ourselves in situations in third year where we would have more of a distant um, training where, you know, we would be expected to look after women and all that kind of stuff with someone kind of shadowing, shadowing but from mm -hmm. outside. Mm -hmm. And I generally feel like that now makes us better midwives. Not that the students going through it now are not going to be as good or good, but I feel like, you know, sometimes when you baby students too much, that then when it comes into being in the real world of midwifery, because it's not easy, sometimes I just think, you know, just throw them in there and it will... Do, do you know what I'm trying to say? Think or float. <laughs> yeah, you just got to sometimes chuck them in, hope they'll swim, and then when they come to be practising on their own, which you are going to do eventually, you are a much more confident practitioner. And I think our training and how we are now definitely, definitely came from the people that trained us up who yeah. still work here now. Like, yeah. we're so grateful. So how do you find now that you are training student midwives? How are you finding that? I really, I really love having students. I really yeah. enjoy it. And I feel like, I feel privileged that I have the opportunity to help shape future mid midwives. And being a midwife myself, you can see what makes a good midwife, can't you? Yeah. And what qualities and, you know, you try to you try to teach them these things to, to help them implement that into their own practice. So I like it. I really love being a, being a mentor. Yeah. But you were always going to be a good mentor. I don't know about that. <laughs> yeah, I think, yeah, I, I agree. Like, we... We had good mentors, didn't we? we? We've mentors. come. We've had good insight on what it can happen if you have a good mentor. But so. also, you were both. So what shone out about you both is you were just so interested in everything. <laughs> yeah, we were. There was nothing you weren't interested in. No. And I think the main thing I say to students is, take the opportunity, ask to do things. Yeah. Don't just sit in the background and sort of listen. Be a part of what's going on. And I think that's what we did, didn't we? Yeah. It's like, even when we weren't trained in cannulas, we'd be like, oh, can, can you show us? Can we have a go? You know, it's like... Should we do it on each other? Yeah, like, like we practice on each other, yeah. yeah. We had to learn nasogastric tube on each other. Oh, no. No way. Someone told me in America, in medical school, they have to learn rectal examination on each other. What? Yeah. I might, it's probably not true, but someone did tell us that. I feel like you do. There is a few... When you train, there is a few <laughs> like, like, random rumours, isn't there, about stuff like yeah. that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, we actually put a little box up on our Instagram page and we asked people like what, what they would want to ask you and actually coming to one of your questions about um, students and stuff one student said in an emergency what is the biggest thing that you wish students knew student midwives to like help so in an emergency the biggest thing I wish student midwives knew is that they really, really can be part of the solution and not a bystander. I think there's no one for whom it's harder in an emergency than a student midwife. Yeah. Because either you're invisible or someone suddenly turns at you and gives you 20 instructions <laughs> and expects <laughs> you to have done it be before you've got, they've got to the 15th. Yeah. Yeah? yeah. You, is that recognisable? We've been there, yeah. We've yeah. been there, yeah. But actually, um, I have been in emergencies where I know the contribution of the student midwife has saved the woman's life. Wow. wow. 
I know that. Mm. Okay. So there's something about what, what you can get out of it as a student. So some of it is technical. So if you are a if if an emergency is going like I hope they go, it is a bit like we, at the beginning what you described when you said actually you do a role allocation. So role allocation is very interesting. Yeah. We talked before about hierarchy and um, a student midwife may feel she sits somewhere on a hierarchy, okay? Mm. And the people in the room may feel that. But if people thought about role allocation in a different way, there would be no hierarchy. Because if instead of saying your role is midwife, your role is doctor, your role is HCA, your role is student midwife, if we thought about with a postpartum hemorrhage, your role is to sit next to the head, put oxygen on, and whisper encouragement to the mum. Yeah. Your role is to go to the, the arms and put cannulae in. Your role is to also be around the arms and do blood pressure and take pulse. Okay? Your role is to be between the legs and deliver the placenta and put a catheter in. Yeah. So instead of thinking about it by what someone's profession is, you start thinking about it by what they can do. Now, there are things student midwives can do. So they may not be confident in delivering a placenta on their own and putting a catheter in or putting a cannula in. But in my experience, student midwives are very, very good at talking to people. Yeah. Okay? And if no one is allocating you a role, there is almost always one person who looks like they're going to be the next patient, and that's the dad. (laughs) Yes. So if you cannot work out what your role is, go to the dad and make sure he's all right. And with the dad, you will often find another person, and that's the baby. Okay? So there is a role. Even if no one is assigning you anything, you can be proactive and do that, because it it often... Do you find this? That often gets left. Yeah. Yeah. And it's that... The dad's normally the person that sees everything, isn't he? So just by... Like, what I mean by that is that the mum's obviously having, you know, blood pressure's taken, whatever. The dad sits back, and he sees it, everything. So maybe just a bit of reassurance to him can also impact him afterwards. He might be traumatised. Yeah, trauma, yeah, we've seen that quite a lot, actually. Yeah. The dad's generally more traumatised than the mum, we see. Mm. And they need also some debriefing and some help because they're alert and aware of everything. So, yeah, that's that's a really good answer. You get that, you get that off people. When people have been on intensive care for weeks and weeks and then they wake up, sometimes they're far less traumatised than the family members. Yeah. yeah. This is a question from me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. How do you balance being a consultant, a husband, a father? Like, how do you balance all of these three things? I, I, I can't answer that with authority. And <laughs> do your best. But you, you have a <laughs> lot of hours. Yeah, like, yeah. I don't, I, I do go home, actually, though. Yeah. So it, you are right that healthcare professionals do work unsocial and long hours. Yep. We all do. But, uh, but um, I don't know, but when I'm at home, I, in honesty, I don't think about my work at home. Yeah. I, I completely compartmentalise it. I think it would have to be something very, very heavy at work for me to bring it home. Mm. Now, my beautiful wife it always brings uh, her work home because she's, it's not that it's right or wrong, she's one of these people who's got to debrief to me about all the things that happened in the day. Otherwise, she can't relax at home. What does she do? She's a GP, so oh, she works wow. in, do you know Seven Kings? Ilford. Yeah, yeah, near yeah, Ilford. Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. So, uh, so uh, she has to tell me about her day. Yeah. And so I don't really do that. So <laughs> yeah. I don't know why. 
Um, That's so interesting. Do you never find that doctors always go out with doctors? Really? You yeah, think so? I always find that. They're always like doctors, doctors. So, yeah. I don't, I, so, maybe. There may be that there's an understanding there yeah. about what life is like. Yeah. It may be that they're really sad and never meet anybody else. <laughs> yeah. Or, I don't know, I had an arranged marriage. Did you? Mm. Wow. It was our 20th anniversary last month. Oh, congratulations. Oh, thank you. That's yeah, amazing. That's amazing. Maybe I need one of those, an arranged marriage. Can you set her up, Mr Khan? Yes. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> I need... No, I don't want a midwife, though. I want to, like... Maybe you can set me up with one of your rugby players that you met at uni. No, you don't want that. No. <laughs> well, I think whoever try. Mr Khan thinks you deserve someone top-notch. Yeah, you deserve someone better than that. Okay. Thank you, guys. <laughs> um, I have a question for you, actually. Um, you know, like you talk, you talk a lot about you know going to India, all these different memories. Is there anything in your career besides those that's really stuck with you? Something that you always have kept with you, if that makes sense. I think, I mean, there's actually lots of memories from my from my career. Yeah. Okay. But I think so. The, the honest answer to that is. I think every year I remember things in a slightly different way as maybe I'm, I'm a bit older and I'm gaining more experience. So over the last 12 months, my, my memories of things happening in my career has slightly changed. So I think it's changed because of one or two events in the world and one or two other things. But I started thinking about equity much more. So that might seem like a weird answer because it might think the answer is so if you'd asked me two years ago it might have been a particular patient that really I could never forget their yeah. case okay yeah. but I've been thinking about things in a slightly different way recently yeah so a lot of, lot of stuff happened in 2020 mm. one of the things that happened I've alluded to which is a far more open conversation nationally about unequal health outcomes depending on race oh yes okay yeah. And the second was BLM. Yeah. So I and we, we were very interested by this. Okay. So Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists set up a race equality task force. I sit on it. I wow, put wow. myself there because I realized that I was interested in it because I had been watching it my yeah. whole professional career in terms of its impact on the women I was looking after and actually its impact on my midwifery and medical colleagues. Yeah. But uh, we were in an environment where it was very uncomfortable to talk about it. And we still are. Yeah. But it is not quite as uncomfortable as it used to be. Yeah. So you've been incredibly kind in, in that you've said that I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a senior consultant and all of that. Well, actually, to paraphrase the original Spider-Man films, with great power comes great responsibility. Oh, yeah. And there might be that I should use it in the right way. Yeah. yeah. So I want to do that. So I want to be a better advocate for things that I, I believe with my value system are right. Yeah. And what I think is right and what I think is wrong is I think uh, race inequality, particularly what applied to health, is wrong. Yeah. So we, us three, we were in East London, yeah. all right? And there is a, a health equality gap in, in London, yeah, actually, across the city. So we watch the effects of that every day. And we... We walk around East London and we can see how poorly people look 
You don't need training for that. No, yeah. You can see what the effects of deprivation and poverty are. And now we talk more openly about race. So I now, in 2021, keep thinking back to times when I saw little hints of that all the way through my training and my career. And, 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 uh, and I think about it and I try and relate it to myself. So yeah. I'm very privileged. I'm a doctor, you know. Yeah. And yet, and I'm not going to go into this in depth, this is probably not the right place or time, but there are times in my life or in my career where things have happened to me, okay? Yeah. And that includes last year, where, where things were going on all over the world. So we, we, we all try to... People use this word resilience, Yeah. okay? So I think, actually, so I am resilient and I'm not proud of it. I don't want to be resilient. What I want is for things to be fair. Mm. Yeah. Well, sometimes I, I feel guilty, you know, because I think, well, how I can I, say, for example, I'm obviously a white woman. If I go into labour and, you know, there's also a black woman that's gone into labour, knowing now that she's five more, is it five times more likely to die? Like, what makes us different? Like, why? Like, why does that happen? And as you said, you know, you don't want to be resilient to it and you should, you know, maybe, like, fight against it, for example. But so should I. Like, so should people that don't um, experience it. But we should stick up for it too. Like, it should be, like, a collective thing where, like, if we all done it together, then it can kind of stop it. I think that a lot of the fight should come from the more privileged community. Um, to stand up for the rest. Yeah. Some things you read are embarrassing. Like the Sainsbury's thing that was on Twitter when people was like outraged when they released the adverts and there was like a black person on uh, the advert. The and Christmas then, advert. Yeah, and then um, white people were saying that they're not going to shop in Sainsbury's anymore. That's embarrassing for me because I'm like, I come into that cat- I come into the category of a white person. Do you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. But yeah, that's a whole other subject, but definitely something we should all work on together. Where are they going to go then? Asda? <laughs> Tesco? I don't know. Oh. So in women's health, obviously there are a lot of things that need to be changed and, and improved on. Maybe this is going to give the same answer. I don't know, but do you f- what? What do you feel is one of the main? Is, well, yeah, the main thing that we need to work on in women's health. It'd be. Can I give that answer for East London? Yes. Because yes. that's where I work. Okay. <laughs> so that's. Uh, so I do have an answer for that. Okay. So I think the answer is to do with education. So now I'm not talking about, you know, me learning off you and you learning off me, which is our usual thing. I, I'm talking about health literacy and education in the women we look after yeah okay uh, but perhaps sometimes I'm just talking about literacy and the English proficiency so yesterday I met a woman in antenatal clinic she come for a face-to-face appointment yeah. which is just as well I don't think it would have worked on the telephone like many of the women us three look after she really didn't speak any English mm. she lived in London for 16 years wow yeah I, I know it makes you think it makes yeah. you stop and think a little bit so there are so many barriers which we have failed to lift or burn down mm. uh, in the face of women achieving good quality education to at least achieve the goal of being able to have a, a conversation in English. There are so many barriers inside and outside communities. Yeah. 
I never really have thought through what to do about that, but it did occur to me that, um, <clears throat> firstly, I believe it does matter, and I suspect some of the health outcome things, what we've been discussing, could change if we had better health education and health literacy. Um, but the, the, the second thing is, um, you know we capture people in pregnancy, more you than me. Yeah. So you can be fairly separate from mainstream society, but you almost can't be when you're expecting. Because you, you have to engage. Yeah. So you meet a midwife and she organises a scan for you and she, she feels your tummy and she... But the main thing, you, the main value that you guys bring, which I watched with the, the, when my wife's been pregnant, you just talk to people, you're nice to them, okay? And um, you're engaging with them. Yeah. And they're engaging with you, and like you've asked us questions, they're asking you questions, and you can speak to them with authority. Yeah. But you're having a dialogue, okay? And it's especially with continuity of care, which I think is fantastic. Yeah. And I completely agree with the goal of achieving that for 75% of women uh, of BAME or deprivation groups. You actually continue the conversation for nine months. Yeah. So it reminded me of something I thought about a few years ago, that because you've got a captive audience for a certain amount of time, that would be such an amazing time to teach people English. Yeah. Now, you're midwives, and I'm a doctor. I'm not saying we've got time to do night classes, otherwise we will have no work-life balance, you know? Yeah. But, and I don't know if that's the right answer, but I'm going to try and keep thinking about things like that, because I, I, think, I think actually that will improve outcomes. I agree. That is one of the main barriers in East London that we come across, don't we? Yeah, and obviously we do have resources, advocates and stuff, but there's still, even with an advocate, you don't really get to have honest conversation. Do you know what I mean? When you can build a rapport with someone and they can learn how, how, you're, like, how to communicate, you kind of get a connection. There's nothing in the middle. So, yeah, you're right. It would benefit, wouldn't it? Yeah. Nothing would please my advocate, my advocate and interpreting colleagues more than if they were no longer needed. Yeah, yes. Nothing would please them more exactly. than Us that. too. Us we believe yeah. that too. And antenatal education is so vital in a woman's in the woman's journey throughout her pregnancy and postnatal period. When a woman is aware of what's happening to her body and to her baby, even if things don't go the way she planned or she wanted, she might not suffer from post-traumatic stress because she understood what happened, why it happened, and that sometimes these things do happen. So I think what you're saying ties in very nicely. If someone is learning English, then in English we can communicate, build what Rachel said, a relationship, talk to them about antenatal education, they're likely to have a more positive outcome in the end. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And I think then I think things like birth planning would be more meaningful conversations yeah, because, true. because actually it would be genuinely informed. Yeah. Um, and then so, so the other exciting thing which is new is uh, in England they're now building maternal medicine networks so these are ways for women with complex uh, medical uh, problems to be able to get access to good care yeah so the exciting news is East London's been designated as a network with the Royal London as the hub wow. 
So that the, is good news. So it's good, but yeah. so it's very much a network. So the goal is that it should not matter where you live in East London, you should be able yeah. to access the care that you need. That's incredible. Yeah, that is really good. That's really, really good. I feel proud to work here. I know, me too. Thank you so much. What we wanted to do once before you go is every single podcast we always, well, we've been trying, especially during yeah. COVID, is say something positive. So, like, um, I don't know if you if you believe in this kind of stuff, but, um, you know, putting things out to the universe, affirmation, something like that, that we... <laughs> We'll go first and you can kind of see what we do and then you make your own one up. Is that okay? Okay, so mine is going to be... Um, today, I'm going to be kind. I'm going to act with kindness. I'm going to spread kindness. And in turn, I'm going to make others feel happy. Oh, that's lovely. For your time of what we spoke about today. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. Okay, I'm going to do a pregnancy-related one. Okay, okay, go for it. My body has the ability to grow a healthy baby. It's a really good one. Your turn. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll do, I, I, I'll just do one about the future. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay, okay. So there is a future and things have been rough, but they are already getting better and I think they're gonna continue to get better. That's, that's a really good. good one. That's a really good one. Yeah, I feel a bit more like oh, it's going to be okay. I feel like we're nearly at the end of the tunnel. I feel like things are going to get better, aren't they? Yeah. Do you, do you agree? Yeah, I do. Yeah. I think they already are. Yeah. yeah. So we, we're um, the intensive care at the Royal London was perhaps the largest in the whole country at the peak of the pandemic. Yeah. And all of us worked there. You did as well? Yeah, a wow. shift as an HCA. Ah, oh, really? Yeah, yeah. They needed the stuff. That That's, makes me but they, but they don't need me now. Yeah. And so things are getting better. Wow, that's incredible. That is... Yeah, I was doing mouth care, eye care. Wow. Um, helping with proning and with rolling. Oh my gosh, how did you find all of that? I didn't know what I was doing. It's yeah. quite refreshing. Yeah. <laughs> they really, yeah. the, you know, ITU nurses are unbelievable. Yeah. They are so amazing. Mm. And it was very, very hard for them and for the doctors as well. Yeah. But they, they've, um, I've got nothing but admiration. Me, it's me just too, incredible. Yeah. yeah. I think they deserve more than a clap every week. They deserve so much more. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming Mr. on. Mr. Khan, it's been a pleasure. Oh, Rayhan, sorry. Oh, Rayhan, yeah. it's, been, yeah. <laughs> it's been a pleasure. We've li literally, I, I feel like I've learned so much today. I know, I feel like I just want to listen to you talk all day. I've, I feel like I I've learned off you. Cry. That was oh, a bit sad what emotional. you just said. Yeah. When you just said you worked as a HCL, I was like, wow, like, he really doesn't think about hierarchy. No. That's so refreshing. I wish more consultants and doctors were like, were you. like you. I think the NHS would be a better place. And we admire you so much, don't we? We do. Off the record, uh, yeah, we, we, we do, we love you, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs>